Psalm 49 deals with the age-old question, why do the wicked seem to prosper? And yet the psalmist presents something here in Psalm 49 that both the wicked and the righteous have in common. That is death. Indeed, death is the great equalizer. And so the psalmist contemplates the effect that death has on both the wicked and the righteous. And in doing so, he gives consolation for the oppressed. Consolation for the oppressed. Now, the superscription of Psalm 49 says that this psalm was written for the choir director and that it is a psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah being the temple singers, uh, Levites, uh, who had been appointed to that task by David. And it doesn't tell us which specific uh, descendant wrote this psalm, just that it was written by one of the descendants of Korah for the choir director. According to verse 4, the psalm is a proverb or riddle. Uh, we would call this a then a wisdom psalm. And also, psalm, verse 4 tells us this was intended to be played on the harp. Now, it's called a wisdom psalm or a proverb uh, because of the information that it's presenting. And though it's poetic, it has a lot of similarities to the Pro book of Proverbs and, and uh, the writings contained therein. So we're going to look at Psalm 49. We're going to break down verses 1 through 4 with the call. We're going to look at verses 5 through 15, the counsel. And then we're going to look at verses 16 to 20, the conclusion. So let's begin with the call in verses 1 to 4. The call in verses 1 to 4. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Now this opening call to listen or to hear is an imperative used to gain our attention. The whole of humanity, not just Israel, is being addressed. All peoples, all inhabitants of the world... Every sociological stratum is included here, the low and the high, the rich and the poor. And the writer speaks wisdom. He says, my mouth will speak wisdom. And then, of course, we see the parallel to that with the proverb and the riddle. Now, the word translated riddle here uh, literally means a dark saying or something for you to contemplate on. And so the meditation of his heart here is to... Foster understanding. Uh, the word, word wisdom appears here in the plural, meaning wouldn't, we wouldn't translate it as wisdoms, but rather full wisdom. I speak full wisdom or complete wisdom. And what we see here is from a practical observation perspective is that the psalmist is saying, hey, here's how you get through life. You implore wisdom. You implore understanding. You listen to wise sayings and you apply them to your life. And he's including his own input here, the meditation of my heart. So in other words, he's not just sharing what he's heard. He's also shared, sharing his thoughts and what he has learned by experience. And so he's bringing his creative effort to the tradition of wisdom. Because he doesn't just want to impart knowledge. He really wants to impart enlightenment. Okay, See, we can impart knowledge. We can just share what we've learned what we've heard, what we've been taught. But when we begin to then share what we've experienced, 
Now, that experience often is taking what we've learned and applying it in real-world situations. Then we begin offering enlightenment to people. Ah, that's how that piece of information impacts your life. Oh, that's how that piece of knowledge affects X, Y, and Z. He continues, I will incline my ear to a proverb. That is, he receives the oral tradition of the wisdom teachers. He's orally heard these proverbs of old, but he's going to offer now his own parable, his own proverb, his own riddle, as he's playing on the harp. And that's what he's speaking of here in this psalm. He's referring to the psalm itself. He explains that his words, though wise, would be dark or would be riddles in that discernment or understanding are necessary for perception. And that's so important is that, you know, when we're learning something, when we're hearing something, uh, whether it's knowledge or enlightenment, wisdom, understanding, that we have to engage our thinking. We have to engage our minds in regard to what we're hearing. We can't just hear it and have a bunch of facts floating around and just let it go out the other ear. We need to discern and understand. We need to perceive that information, and which means we need to apply it to ourselves. How many of life's difficulties so often require spiritual perception to forestall despair? You know, think about it. So many things come into our life, and if we don't look at them through the lens of Scripture or through the lens of eternity, or as God would look at them, if we don't perceive them from a divine perspective, oftentimes the situations and circumstances of life are going to cause us to despair. Look at the counsel in verses 5 to 15. Why then should I fear in days of adversity? When the iniquity of my foes surround me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he could cease trying forever that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of those after them who approve their words, Selah. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they will have no habitation." But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. So as he moves from this call, and again, remember, the call was universal. He's calling upon the wicked and the righteous, the rich and the poor. Uh, you know, and, and he's calling upon them to consider their ways. And uh, he's calling on them to engage in some thinking and some learning and some understanding. Now, he asks a crucial question here in verse 5. Why? Here's where they're going to think. Why should I fear in the days of adversity? Why should I fear when the iniquities of my foes surround me? Now the reason for the psalmist's fearlessness in light of evil days and enemies is that those who are prideful and trust in their wealth will reach an insurmountable barrier. None of them can by any means redeem their brother. Now, friend, if, if, if you're in a position where you have been oppressed, uh, whether it's 
by an individual, by a group, uh, whether it's socially, whether it's emotionally, whether it's uh, from family, uh, economically, wherever the oppression is coming from, you know, you're, you're, you're often despairing. You're thinking, man, you know, I'm, I'm fearful of X, Y, or Z. And the psalmist wants you to think through this. What should you fear? Why do you have to fear the evil day? Why do you have to fear your enemy? Because think about this. They cannot redeem their own brothers. This comes down to a basic issue of life. The verb redeem means to ransom, to buy back, to purchase back. The idea of buying back a brother from death by human wealth is impossible. For all the money they have, for all the power they have, for all the prestige they have, they cannot redeem even their own brother from hell. There's no installment plan. And this, again, is a spiritual rather than a material matter. And that's one thing we have to keep in mind is don't be consumed with the physical. You have to look at it from the spiritual point of view. You know, yeah, this individual may be causing you grief, may be causing you stress, may be causing you strife in your life. This situation may be a burden. But again, any of those things cannot save themselves or save someone else. Now, if you are a child of God, even if you are oppressed, as a child of God, guess what? You've been redeemed. And you have the good news that can redeem someone else. Verse 9 brings it to, a, to a, the head here. Listen, for all their, their, their money, their power, their prestige, they, they, they think they're going to live on eternally. Guess what? They're not. They think that they're not going to undergo decay. Guess what? They are. Dig up any grave in any place in the world of a rich man or a poor man. Guess what? you got the same thing. Corruption and decay. See, what we need to learn here is that we need to be redeemed from death. That's the issue we need to focus on. See, when we're being oppressed by, from whatever, focus on the fact that regardless of what oppression comes, death is the key issue. As Christ said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body. See, death is the great leveler, as verse 10 points out. No one can escape it. The rich can't escape it. The wealthy can't escape it. The powerful can't escape it. Uh, no one can escape it. The wise man will die. The fool, will, the stupid person, will die. The senseless person will die. The fool, the person who rejects wisdom, uh, that, that, that's the uh, stupid person. The senseless person is someone who basically is brutish or acts like an animal. They, you know, they're just, they, they've got no sense. They, they, they just act on their own desires, their own whims, their own needs, their own hungers. All of them leave their wealth to others, okay? They spend their entire life accumulating wealth, and guess what? When they died, they didn't take it with them. And so to make wealth the object of trust is to lose everything in the end. So, you know, don't sit here and say, oh, man, I wish I could be like that person. I wish I was in their position. 
the reality is they can't take any of it with them. And more often than not, their eternal destiny is not going to be better than yours. Verse 11 elaborates on the dangers of wealth. See, they have the material possessions have the illusion of lasting. Think about it. Listen, you buy something, this has got a lifetime guarantee. Look, at, look, find something around your house that has a lifetime guarantee. You're going to be hard-pressed to find anything that has its quote-unquote lifetime guarantee that's going to outlive your lifetime. Products are marked unbreakable. I can't tell you things I've bought that are quote-unquote unbreakable that I've got no problem breaking. And no, it's not because I sat there and said, oh, I'm going to figure out how to break this thing. Or it's waterproof. Oh, yeah, not, nothing better than taking a you know, $1,000 waterproof watch. I did not do this. But a $1,000 waterproof watch and diving in deep into the pool only to come back up and the watch don't work. Really? Great, great waterproof watch. I'm not saying there aren't those that are waterproof, but again, they're only waterproof to a what? A certain depth or a certain amount of time. Again, it's not lasting. Or the, or the fabulous, oh, this is rust-free. Really? The diamond is forever. Really? Who's lived long enough to find out if a diamond is forever? No one. And the reality is, even if the diamond is forever, guess what? We're not. The wealthy call their lands after their own names. Man, they'd love to slap a name on everything. You know? Somebody buys a golf course, man, they slap their name right on that golf course. You know, they, 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 buy, a, they buy a park and they slap their name on the park. You know, they buy a building, they slap their name on the building. Okay, that, that's, that's what the foolish people of this world do. The conclusion here is they, they think... They're immortal. If I can put my name on a building, on a park, on, a, on this, that, or the other, I'm immortal. I'm going to live forever. Or at least my name is going to live forever. Guess what? You think you possess something, but you don't possess anything. You're just part of the passing show. Man and his pomp will not endure. Like the beast of the field. He's going to die. He's going to perish. See, humanity, however honored it may be, they can put their name on whatever they want to put their name on. At the end of the day, they're just like a beast of the field. They're going to perish. The way of the foolish and those after them, that is, those who agree with them, as described in verse 13, are like sheep who are laid in a grave. Death are, is going to be their shepherd. Okay? Death, the, the, the grim reaper's coming. And he's going to shepherd them right into Sheol, right into the pit of hell. And they're going to be consumed far from their houses, which they thought to be eternal. Now, in contrast to the foolish who die, the psalmist now gives witness, uh, uh, gives his witness in verse 15. And he answers the problems of verses 7 and 9. Since human wealth and pride cannot redeem a soul from death, who or what can? And the answer, of course, is that it's only God. The work of redemption is God's work. He paid the price. He reclaimed creation. Uh, he, he did the work of redemption. He alone broke the power of Sheol. And so the person who repents in places of their sin and places their faith in him will be received by him. By the way, the Hebrew verb here, receive or take, indicates uh, is the same, used, uh, same term used in Genesis 5.24 when Enoch was taken into heaven. Now, believer, God's redemption has been accomplished in Christ. 
And the promise of this psalm and the resolution of death belongs to the child of God. As Paul puts it, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now there's something you can bank on. See, the riches of his grace don't decay. The riches of his grace last forever. The riches of his grace don't, are not corruptible. Unlike the things of this earth. And so, the psalmist gives hope to those who are oppressed by the wicked. Those who are oppressed by the rich and the powerful and the proud. At the end of the day, they're going to be undone and they're going to rot in hell. But if you're a child of God, you will receive a great inheritance. You will be lifted up. Again, God gives grace to the humble, not to the proud. He raises up. He exalts the humble. He exalts the oppressed, but not the proud. Verses uh, 16 to 20. We have the conclusion. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he will go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. The psalmist now exhorts us, don't be afraid of the rich man. Don't be afraid of the glory of his estate, his house, where his family increases. I, you know, I love that he congratulates himself. Okay, you know, I'm wonderful. I'm this. I'm that. How great am I? Guess what? All that's going to be left behind. Death strips us naked, and that wealth is going to be left behind. And while he lives to pat himself on the back or bless his own soul with self-congratulations, and loves to receive the praise of others. In death, when he joins his fathers in, the, in hell, guess what? There's only darkness. Verse 20, the psalmist concludes that a person who is in honor, that is, who is enamored with the honor of this life, and who does not understand, that is, he, he gives no thought to anyone else other than himself, is like the beast that perish. He doesn't understand that he's going to die. He doesn't understand that he can't take his honor with him. He can't take his property. He can't take his name with him in death. He doesn't understand that the issues of life is his soul and that only God alone can redeem him from death. He doesn't understand at all. And so there's a great encouragement to those who are oppressed. That those who oppress them will be brought down. The wicked will come to their end in God's time. So Psalm 49 forces us to consider our lives. Friend, you need to understand that the only issue that counts is the redemption of your soul from death. And once you're clear about that, then you're prepared for what is to come. And so, friend, if you've never repented of your sin, you've never forsaken that sin, you've never turned to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never put your faith or trust in His finished work, that is, He died on the cross in your place as your sacrifice, as a substitute for your sin, and shed His blood to pay for your sin, and took God's wrath upon Himself, and then gave up the ghost. Physically, He went down, that body went down into Sheol, down into hell, and then was resurrected 72 hours later to validate that his father was pleased with his sacrifice. That's what we have to put our faith in. That's what we put our trust in. And so when we repent of our sin, when we put our faith and trust in that work of Christ, 
We become a child of God, and the evidence of that is our surrender, our submission to Jesus as our Lord. That's the most important thing, my friend. And that gives great hope to the oppressed, to those who are oppressed, that if Jesus is their Lord and Savior, the day of reckoning will come, and God will sort all things, and God will exalt you and destroy them. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank and praise you for the promises of Scripture. And Father, it is good to know that even though we get so caught up in the things of this world, it's good to know that at the end of the day, everybody's going out the way they came in with nothing. And Father, I would ask, Lord, if there's someone here listening, that Father's just struggling, they're oppressed from whatever or someone or whatever it may be, that Father God, you might give them hope, that, Lord, they might focus their eye on you. That, Father, in contemplating these things, they might consider that, Lord, these things that are oppressing them, Lord, are but temporary. They're not eternal. And that, Father, while they may not be able to cast off the shackles of that oppression in their lifetime, Father, there is one who can, and that is you. And that, Father, even now they might come and they might cry out to you. That even now, Lord, they might come and repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in your son's finished work. And that, Father, you might free them from the oppression of sin and death. That, Lord, you might restore them and give them new hope, new life. And that, Father, you might lift them up and exalt them in due time. And, Father, if there's someone listening who has considered themselves rich and powerful, if there's someone listening who has been consumed with congratulating themselves and patting themselves on the back and singing how great they are, Father, I pray that you might humble them as well before it is too late, because death is certainly coming for them as well. There is a day of reckoning coming, and Lord, I pray that in your grace and in your mercy, you might, by your Spirit, move upon their heart and humble them. Bring them to that place of repentance. Bring them to that place of faith, that they too might be saved. And so, Father, I thank you that you have redeemed us, and that, Lord, while death is an end in this life, there is life beyond. And as a child of God, we look forward to that blessed hope, that living hope, Father, of that reward and eternal inheritance we will receive. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.